Well, good morning, Tabernacle. Thank you for being with us, uh, especially those who are with us online in Manistee. Here in Buckley, we love all of you. And um, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to not only bring it, uh, but to open it to Acts chapter 17. Uh, Before we go there, though, I want to give just a quick word about our annual meeting uh, that was held last uh, Sunday night. A word of thanks um, to all those who were able to make it uh, and make it a priority and to come and vote. Uh, Thank you for doing that. Thank you for participating. Thank you also to those who couldn't make it but took the time to fill out an absentee ballot to get one. I know that was a little bit of a rigmarole, as they say. I don't even know what rigmarole means, but my mom says it, so there you go. Um, So thank you uh, to those. Uh, If uh, you didn't see online, our congregation took the decision uh, collectively to adopt this statement of faith that we've been going through and to pursue membership in the Evangelical Free Church of America. So we're pretty excited about that. Yeah. And so I I would be a hypocrite if I didn't also say uh, thank you to all of you who voted no. Thank you. Thank you for those who questioned. Thank you to those who asked hard questions and and who showed up with a constitution and a bylaw in your hand, uh, uh, making sure that we were squared away. That's important. We live in a culture where if anyone disagrees with you or has a differing opinion, we cancel you and we have nothing to do with you. And the church needs to be a place where open discussion is welcome and encouraged. And even when we disagree, we can still be unified as a church. Do you believe that? That's important for us. And so uh, unity doesn't always mean unanimity. And so I was thankful for that, that we can have differing opinions. And and where we're going with that is what will happen next is the free church uh, district of the Great Lakes, I guess it's the Great Lakes District, um, will accept us into membership at their October meeting, and there'll be more information. Last on that, if you're wondering what the big change is going to be, you won't even feel it. (laughs) In fact, it may go years and we don't even talk about it. Uh, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. Uh, we're just part of something uh, bigger than ourselves. And so um, in, in our series, this, this We Believe series, uh, I want to take a moment before we jump into this last installment to also say, if you're paying attention closely, you'll see that it follows a linear progression, that the statement of faith that is now the statement of faith of this church It begins with God and will end today with response and eternal destiny is actually an exposition or an explanation of the gospel from beginning to end. And so the way it's flowed is first we talked about God, his nature, his character. And then secondly, how we know this from his word, the Bible. Do we still believe the Bible is true? Two of us, that's good. All right. Do we still believe the Bible is true? Good. All right. From the Bible, we learn about our human condition, that we are fallen, we're sinful, um, and, and we need a savior. What that was next in, in the flow was Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done, the work of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, how the Holy Spirit binds us together in this thing 
called the church, which was God's idea. And then Christian living, that we're not just meant to uh, have a faith that's for someday, but a faith that's right now that's progressively changing us. And then last week, we looked at the promise of Christ's return. Well, this linear exposition of the gospel demands a response. Otherwise, we're just talking a lot of words. We're saying, oh, this is what we believe, and it's a, it's a nice scholastic study. But the whole exposition of the gospel, we end up in this place with what will your response be? And where will that response lead you for all eternity? And so that's where we are with the response and eternal destiny, Article 10. And I'm going to read for you what we believe and what we believe the Bible says. It goes this way. We believe that God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth. To the praise of his glorious grace, amen. And it ends the statement of faith with amen because it has been a mini sermon, if you will. And if we leave that on the screen just for a moment, let's go back through there because these are some important truths. First, that this gospel is for everyone everywhere. This gospel is not just for Americans. It's not just for white Americans. It's for every person, every nation, every tongue, every race, every tribe. And the gospel is for all, and it's only through the Lord Jesus Christ. We also believe that in the resurrection of the dead, that it will be bodily, that it will be literal. You will have a new body. And there's one of two places, either, and this is hard to read, I'll, I'll confess it, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment. That's not easy to read. That's not easy to to wrap my mind around. And for the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth. Well, this wasn't just our idea. This is a biblical idea. And so I first want to look in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. And I'm going to continue with my personal campaign to encourage you to find your Bible by not putting the Bible verses on the screen. So hopefully you'll find yours soon or you'll take my word for it or get your flat screen out or what have you. That's fine. But in Acts chapter 17, we find that this was the message of the first apostles. I want to look at a story by which Paul preach the gospel in Athens. To some of you, this is familiar. Well, if you'll remember, Paul was forever starting either riots or revivals everywhere he went. God had started a revival in his life when he was busy starting riots against Christians, when he met with the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. And now everywhere he's going, he's preaching the gospel. And he's being beaten for it, he's being stoned for it, left for dead, arrested, jailed, what have you. He'd just been run out of another place, 
And he finds himself in this massive, majestic uh, city, this historic city of Athens, and he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him. And so I want to pick up the story. I think it's important for us in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. It says, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, I want to pause right there and let's look at the context of Athens. Athens in Greece at that time was very much like the United States today, okay? They're dominated by the world's uh, uh, most powerful nation, Rome, but they've kept some of their Greek culture, and, and it's a place that's full of idols. And I would say the United States is full of idols. Uh, we may not bow down to statues, but make no mistake, we have idols, Namely, we have an idol of ourselves, an idol of our form of government, a form of our culture, of our language. We have an air of superiority. We do. We make idols of a lot of things. We make idols of our children. We make idols of our grandchildren. We make idols of retirement and money and trucks. Do I need to keep going? (laughs) We do. We do. We all do. And so they're full of idols. We're full of idols. And this is where Paul shows up and he's moved in his heart to preach the gospel, that all of this is false, that there's only one God and we need to turn to this one God. And and he's getting into these conversations with these people who are forever curious about whatever's the latest and greatest. And I was thinking about that. If you look in verse 21, it says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And we're the same way, are we not? Evidence number one. We wake up in the morning, and the first thing we do, pull it out. Right? Who shot who last night is what we want to know. Right? What's the latest and greatest? We're slaves to those things, myself included. We want to hear something new. What's the newest fad? What's the newest fashion? What's the newest sports dealio, right? What's the newest gossip? What's the newest, what is is their team doing this week that we have to vote out? How do I get my, I mean, that's what we do. We're always forever looking for the thing that is new. What's the newest way to drop those extra pounds? What's the newest way to get my kids uh, uh, to behave the way I want so I don't have to be such a control freak? You know what I can't? This is us with our interwebs. What's the newest idea that's going to make me happy? And there there were these prominent groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and these philosophers had two opposing views of how to look at the world, and they're very American. 
The first, the Epicureans, was basically, look, don't get bent out of shape about judgment. It's really not going to happen. It's all about getting as much as you can, as much enjoyment as you can out of this life. It was almost to the point of eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. Just enjoy this. Hang on to life as much as you can. Everyone's getting too bent out of shape. It's about me and mine. These are the Epicureans. And on the other team are the Stoics. And the Stoics were way more cynical. And there's a brand of American that is the same way. That's, you know what? You can't escape it. Everyone's going to die. Everyone's going to get cancer. You just accept life it is. And as long as you don't have expectations too high, it's just about getting through it. We just have to survive it somehow. It's almost like we have optimists and pessimists. He's covering everybody. Am I talking too fast, church? You with me? Okay. So this is Paul. And he's been invited to present this new idea. So verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now I want to pause there. This is just a portion of Paul's sermon. But if we could just recap, he's brought to this place. We called it the Areopagus, it's on a hill, a bald hill called Mars Hill. It's right next to the, Aprocol- or to the Acropolis. You thought that was where you got Greek food. That's actually a place, right? And, and this was the place where they would have trials. This was the place where they would debate the latest ideas because, of course, they're not looking on phones like this. They're actually coming together and looking one another in the eye. And so they have Paul there, and Paul's looking for a sermon illustration, and Athens provides it. He sees all these idols, and don't miss this. This is also very American. All of these idols were made by human hands, conceived of man's imagination. And that's forever what we do as Americans, do we not? Well, the God that I want to believe in accepts me just the way I am and and lets me do the things that I want to do. Well, the God that I believe in loves me so much that he says I can identify as any gender that I want. And so we refashion and remake little idols. We try to remake God in our own image. The Greeks did it. 
and we do it. Now, before you think that I'm banging away on those people out there, people far from God who don't get the gospel and all that, we do it inside here too. I'm going to remake a God that lets me just kind of do what I want and put on a mask and play church when I really haven't been saved and really I'm not even sure if I believe all this stuff. I want to remake a God in my own image that lets me do what I want. This is what the men of Athens had done and he saw all these idols and what really grips Paul's imagination is he sees one idol and he's reading the ascriptions. Here's a God, here's a goddess, here's a cluster of God and goddess babies and, and that one's got a head of a bull and whatever and then he comes to one and they're trying to cover their bases. This is to the unknown God. So he goes, aha. And he says, men of Athens, I see you're very religious. You're very spiritual. That's really good. You know, the one idol that you have to the unknown God, let me tell you about him. His name is Jesus. But let me go further. We don't get to fashion a temple where he'll live. We don't get to make him in our image. He's not made out of gold or silver or precious stones. What you worship is unknown. I proclaim to you. He goes on to say that God's will is that we should seek him and somehow find him. And then here's the warning, and it's the same thing that Article 10 says. In times of ignorance, God is overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. God commands everyone to repent. That's the bottom line that I want us all to get from Article 10. And that, that was the bottom line of Paul's message. Men of Athens, God is calling. He sent me to tell you, and he's calling us to repent. Well, repent from what? To turn from our sin and turn towards God. To turn from ourself and turn towards God. To turn from our ideas and the way we fashion God and make him in our image, and instead turn to the one true God. It's always a forever turning towards God, and he calls everyone to do that. Why is that such a big deal? That should be obvious. Well, because I believe in our church here at Buckley, Manistee, watching online, wherever, we still have students that haven't turned and repented, okay? They've trusted that mom and dad have, and they think that's good enough for them. It's not good enough. Husbands have done the same thing. Well, my wife and kids have turned towards God, but I'm going to keep doing my own thing. God calls Everyone, commands everyone to repent. Young, old, everything in between. But it's not just for us in here. Remember I was talking about those out there. God's calling them to repent. What is the mission of our church? To love God, to love people. Don't forget the third part, make disciples. Not just make disciples out of us. Make disciples out of people far from God. And there's so many far from God and we love to wag our tongues at them instead of what are we going to do about it? God commands everyone to repent. Now, if you continue to read here in Acts 17, in the interest of time, I won't. It says that when they heard about this, some of the Greeks mocked Paul. They mocked him. And that's true today. There's some people that mock this message. Christianity is the laughing stock, right? We were, you know, we used to say that uh, uh, we were one nation under God. Now, if you try to talk about God, particularly in faith in Jesus Christ, we're a mockery. 
And some of that we've brought on ourselves, to be honest. Christians in the church, yeah, collectively, we've brought some of that on ourselves. But make no mistake, Jesus never deserved to be mocked. And some mocked this message of the resurrection. It says that some wanted to hear more about this. It says, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. And then it says in verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Arapagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And I love that. It gives it a real personal flair. So there's three groups of people when they hear this message that God commands everyone to repent. Some people mock the message and that has been true for 2,000 years. Some people say, I need to hear more. And if that's you, you need to continue to hear more. Good, but let's not take too long. Sooner or later, you need to make a decision. And then there's a third group that says, I choose to believe and I choose to join you. The message is for all of us, this turning away from myself and towards God, away from my sin and towards God, away from the way of the world and the thinking of the world and towards God. Now, I'm sure that I've probably mentioned this before, but I remember being at a fight club table years ago, um, and I... I won't, tell you his ex- I won't tell you his name or his exact words because what happens at Fight Club stays at Fight Club. But essentially, this guy said, I think Paul is full of it. This is his opinion. And so I think it's important for us to say that this wasn't Paul's idea. This is the message of the gospel. This was the message of Jesus. And so if you still have a Bible or a screen, if you'll turn with me to the book of John, I want to look at one more place. This is a sermon that Jesus gave. Because you can dismiss Paul if you want to. I don't because this is God's word. But you can't dismiss Jesus and still call yourself a Christian of any sort. And we get this idea that, well, Jesus is going to be less fierce than Paul is about everyone must repent. Jesus is going to be way more groovy and cool. I know I've been banging away about that for the last couple of weeks, but it's, it's, a, it's a stereotype that I'm kind of sick and tired of because the fact is, is Jesus said it much more direct and much harsher. It's just, you know, we can't find our Bibles yet, so we... <laughs> so I needed to point it out. That's what I'm trying to say. Was that passive aggressive? No. That was just aggressive-aggressive, so yeah. All right, um, so in John chapter 5, Jesus, this is early on in his ministry, and it says that the Jews, in verse 18, they were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking their Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus is stirring up stuff, By calling God his own father, he's ruining the legalist day because he's blowing up their Sabbath rules. And then this is what he says. So Jesus said to them, I mean, sorry, I'm in verse 19 of John chapter five. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. 
For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I want to pause right there. I don't know if you caught that, but this is what Jesus is saying. You think God has authority? He gave the authority to me. You think God is going to judge? God is not going to judge. He assigned me as the judge. If you want to be right with God, you need to be right with me. Don't honor the son. You're not honoring the father. That's why, at least for 10 years, I've been saying, Christians, we need to put the name of Jesus in our mouth and in our conversations when we tell people what we're about, who we're about, and why we believe. It's not that we don't believe in God. Of course we believe in God. But the problem is, is everyone believes in God, the gods that they fashion in their own image. For movie stars and rappers and politicians and whoever's got a moment as a little like a bunny's foot, little good luck charms. Say, oh, I'm, yeah, just me and God. You know, it's just God as I understand him and blah, blah, freaking blah. If God is not Jesus, you're not honoring God. Jesus said so. Jesus said so. All authority is mine. I will be the judge. This is way harsher than what anything that Paul had to say. Don't worry, it gets worse. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Did you catch that, church? Jesus is saying, I've been given the authority. I've been given power over life and death. I'm the power over your eternal destiny. Respond to me is what he's saying. And he only gives two choices. The first is the resurrection. Those who've done good by receiving Christ by faith, receiving his grace by faith, that's the ultimate good that you can do. And that's the resurrection of life. And those who do not, the resurrection of judgment. Why is it important that God commands everyone to repent? Because the only choices, according to Jesus, are heaven or hell. There's only two options. Boy, I sound old timey. I'm going to do this again just to thump it. Yeah, that's who I am. Sorry. Old timey thumper of the Bible. But these are Jesus' words, and there's only two choices a resurrection of life or the resurrection unto judgment. The only choice is resurrection of life unto heaven or the resurrection unto judgment, which is hell. And the descriptions in the Bible, I decided not to 
cover those this weekend. I don't know what heaven's going to be like. I think it's better than any of these people that have had near-death experiences. I really do. And I, I don't want to sit here and get in a fight about, oh, but did you read this one, the little boy? Oh, did you? Ah, whatever. I'll figure it out when I get there. All I know is Jesus called it paradise. Called it paradise. And I, I think it's heaven for a time. As far as I can tell, the Bible says it's an eternal relationship with God where there's no sorrow, there's no sin, there's no shame, there's no tears. Just eternal blessedness with God. And I, I believe what it says in the back of the book that one day he'll remake the new heaven and the new earth. We're coming back here, people, after he fixes it. After he fixes it. What's harder to decipher and discern is his descriptions of hell. Jesus called it a place of fire, like the dump, Gehenna, outside that great city, Jerusalem, that was forever smoking and smoldering as they burned the refuse of the city. The Bible implies that it is eternal, it is conscious, it is punishment, it is utter darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's complete separation from God. And make no mistake, I've had foolish people say foolish things to me like, well, if all my friends are in hell, that's where I want to be. Make no mistake, you won't be in hell with anyone but yourself. Utter isolation. There is no community. Separated from God, separated from one another. And those are our only two choices. And as Americans, we hate that. There's only two choices? No. We love buffets, don't we? Well, we do. It's not Chevy or Ford. It's you can get yourself a Chevy. You can get yourself a Ford. You can get, get yourself a Jeep. I mean, all Jeeps do is rattle and leak. I have one. Uh, you, you can buy foreign. You can buy electric. You can buy better electric. Well, I want a truck. Well, now you can have an electric truck. Well, they're communists, not American. The point is we have choices. You don't like the Lions, you choose the Packers. You've never been there. It doesn't matter. You've never been to Wisconsin. You don't even really like cheese, but you want like your choices. Don't like it in politics. Start a third party. Two choices, that's not enough. So don't be so extreme, but Jesus doesn't give us more than one choice. And, and, and think about this. Wishing that it weren't so doesn't make the only two-choice option go away. And how many people that we love and care about choose simply not to believe it? Well, I, I, I just don't think it's that way. Really, you're making up your own choice. That's why this message is so important. That's why we gather every week. That's why we start campuses. That's why we do ministries. That's why we do outreach. That's why we encourage the men and women and students of the tabernacle to be dominoes because we can sit in here all smug and say, well, I've chosen heaven, but what about them? Do we really believe this? You know, I've often wondered what it is about the story of the Titanic that so grips our imagination. You know, maybe some of it had to do with a, a ship that was called unsinkable. Maybe because it was, it was close enough in recent history that, uh, you know, we have pictures of it and we have actually stories of survivors that have told what happened on that terrible night. 
but man, we're still making movies and documentaries and in search of, and we can take a guided tour in a submarine is what people want. Why, what is it about, out of all the millions of wrecks, what is it about the Titanic that grabs us? And I wonder if it has something to do with this. Is there something in our imagination that is captured by the fact that right after that iceberg tore open a gash in the side of the ship and it began to sink in the ice cold waters of the Atlantic, that everyone on board only had two options. It was either sink and die or somehow get on a lifeboat or something that would float. And the problem was, if, if, if you weren't out of the water, you were going to die as well. I think that's what grips our imagination. And we read stories, you know, Reader's Digest or newspapers, journals, books about the people faced with those choices because there was no third option. There was no, I choose not to believe in this sinking. I don't, I don't believe this is true at all. Meanwhile, Jack, Jack, hang on. No, I mean, no. There was no third option. No one's coming. Coast Guard's not going to make it. There's no choppers. It's 19 whatever. Two options. And for us, the only choices are the same. Heaven or hell. There's no third escape. So, so what do we do? What's the call? If, if this last... Um, article of faith is a, about our response and our eternal destiny. What should our response be? The same thing we've been saying over and over and over, and I don't want us to get tired of it, and I don't want it to be a cliche. It's the truth. The response should be say yes to Jesus. Say yes to Jesus. When he calls people to follow him, the answer is yes. When Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow. Those are three yeses. I turn from me, that's deny myself, and I turn to you. I take up my cross, whatever it is you've called me to, and to follow me in obedience. That's yes, yes, and yes. So what I'm trying to say is it's not just one yes. Yes, if you're not a Christian, I would love for you to say yes today. If you've been hiding behind your wife's faith or your husband's faith or your parents' faith or just somehow believing the lie that because you're here, you show up week in, week out, that like a good luck charm, you're good. No, God commands everyone individually to repent. The only choices are heaven or hell. And the only way out of that is to say yes. And when you say yes, that's the way unto life. And you receive Christ by faith, the forgiveness of sins, and you begin a relationship with him. But church, what we're, the reason I keep using this terminology, this say yes to Jesus, it's not just how we come to relationship with him, it's how we stay in relationship with him. So don't get tired of it because it's a continual list, a succession every minute of every day, yes to God. Some of us said yes to God years ago and we've been saying no ever since. No to get involved, no to participate, no to deny myself, no to carry my cross. Oh, but I prayed a prayer, I'm good. Are you? He's a for real God. 
He's not a crappy idol made in your image. And what Jesus demands of us, what Jesus commands, what he invites us to, pick your word, say yes. And I just wonder if if there are um, some of us that, yeah, we said yes a long time ago, but we've been living in no for a long time. And so I wonder if you ever said yes to him in the first place. He wants our yes. I think there's some among us who've been hearing God say, I need you to be a part of of whatever God's going to do with the tabernacle and Cadillac. And you're like, no, no, I can't do that. No, I like driving an hour to the Buckley campus because I need to be in the room with John live. You can smell his breath. I think some of us need to say yes to God and ask for some help with our addiction. And we're so afraid of what people might think of us that that we won't seek out a pastor. We won't make an appointment. There's some men in our church that are desperate to figure out their marriage on their own. And they don't want to go to a counselor because he actually might look into his soul. Even though God's saying he was there to help you. I wonder if some of us have been desperate for community, but we want someone to come to us. We don't want to accept the invitation to be a part of the community. We, we want to treat church like a drive-thru. And there's more. I, I, I believe there's men, women, students that God has been saying, would you invite that person? Would you share with that person? Would you step out in faith, go on the missions trip, be a domino, all of these types of things, but we just keep saying no. And And really, we're at the buffet saying, God, I don't like that command. Um, No, I don't want to accept that invitation. Can you give me something that I like? And I've said this before. In my experience, when you don't say yes to God, he'll stop talking. He's not going to go, oh, you didn't like that idea? Here, I'll give you. Oh, you don't like that one either? It's like Christmas morning. You can take it back. No, he's not that. He's a for real God. And he wants our yes. So that's the invitation, to not only do it for the first time, but to do it every time, over and over and over and over. That's what he calls us to. He wants us to say, yes. I'm thinking right now, I didn't mention this in the last service, and I should have. Um, Hopefully, they'll recap it online. My own testimony, I said yes to God when I was about six years old. I was presented heaven or hell, and I said, yes. I was about 14 years old. I was at a camp, kind of like our students are going to go to this summer. Oh, isn't that cute? They go to camp. Oh, I'll tell you what happened at camp for me when I was 14 years old is a guy said, will you give God your yes and make him the center of your life, not just your fire insurance card? And I said, yes, again. And then I remember being uh, uh, 20 years old in Florence, Italy on a missions trip, and there was another invitation. If God calls you to be one of these wild-eyed Bible thumpers, will you give him your yes? It wasn't even a yes to be a wild-eyed Bible thumper. It's just, if he calls, will you give him your yes? It was like a double yes, and I said yes. And then I remember being 33 years old, and my wife and I were presented with an option of living Charlotte, North Carolina, to continue living there with all the, uh, all the stuff that it had to offer, or move to the exotic you know, beach town in Brazil or move to Buckley, Michigan. 
And we heard God say, <laughs> Buckley. And we said, yes. I don't know any other way. God wants your yes. So would you bow your heads? And maybe he's speaking to you. I'm done. But if you hear his voice, maybe it's calling you into relationship with him for the first time. Would you say yes? Maybe it's that thing, that the confession of sin. Maybe it's repentance. Maybe it's something he's been saying for a while. He's not an unknown God. He's revealed himself by his word and he's calling all of us into this continual yes relationship. Father, I pray that as individuals we would respond to you. That we would not be ruled by fear. That your spirit would Convict our hearts that you would give us the courage to say yes and not just to say it, but to step out in faith and do it, to live it, to walk it, no matter what happens. God, I pray that you would continue to give our church a passion for lost people, not in condemnation or in judgment. That's reserved for you, but instead, God, that you would help us to be conduits of this gospel that you've entrusted your church with. God, I thank you for your son, Jesus, who gave himself for me, for us on a cross. I thank you for your spirit that still changes lives and that still works in us and through us. God, I pray as little children, we would obey you. As little children, we would be hopeful of the day when we see you for that day when we'll be changed and we'll be made like you. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.